I want to try and make it so those kids can still have those curiosities and can still be inspired and can still think they can do something. Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin Mass area radio dial, in the car, at the home, 102.9. Here today with my normal guide, climate activist, Ted McIntyre, as we continue to make sense of climate. Ted, how are you doing this Tuesday? I'm just doing great. There was a little bit of snow this morning, which was uh, sort of out of character for our new winter. But here you go. Uh, And I'm happy to be here. It kind of goes in with the character of, you know, this is New England. Stick around five minutes. It's going to (laughs) change because it did change. And then it became, you know, no snow. (laughs) But it was pretty for the time that I was out walking in. It was just nice and light floats and no road traction issues that I could see. But. Yeah, it was somewhat winter. (laughs) And we have a special guest today to talk climate from a conservation's perspective, our Franklin conservation aid, Brecca Lye. Good afternoon, Brecca. How are you doing today? Good. How are you, Steve? Hi, Ted. Since others on this Making Sense of Climate may not be aware of you as the conservation agent, why don't you spend a couple of minutes, just give us, you know, your background, kind of highlight a couple of things and how how you ended up here as the conservation agent in Franklin. Sure. Well, to start, I wouldn't have it any other way, but um, (laughs) I am a certified and professional wetland scientist. I'm a previous consultant. I'm also a certified ecological restoration practitioner in training. A lot of acronyms um, that just mean I really like to get dirty. Um, Down and dirty in the soils, anyways. And wet, right? Yeah, that's where I am usually. Yes. If you if you find me a nice dress slacks, that's something's something's off. <laughs> um, but anyways, I am a previous consultant, so I've done a lot of wetland delineations, threatened and endangered species surveys, um, restoration work as far as train derailments, spills, um, even down to creating um, wetland ecosystems. Um, and and some other side projects like forest management plans, um, things of that nature. Interesting, and especially with kind of the recent news from Ohio about a train derailment, that would be a major untaking, I would think. Yes, yeah, that one's, one's, that's going to be decades in making for cleanup for sure, so. And one of the major efforts that you've got underway, particularly this year, is the open space and recreation plan which is being updated as part of the master plan update. Yeah, so the Conservation Commission and um, DPCD, Department of Planning and Community Development, of which the Conservation Department is under, um, is leading the charge, so to speak, for the open space and recreation plan. So that is an inventory of all open space and recreation areas in town, all of the flora and fauna, topography, geography, soils, um, and then extrapolating that out to what residents would like to see within their hometown. Um, on those open space um, and recreation areas. So that could be a javelin field, for example, even up to 
you know, we would really like to figure out a way to aerate the sculpture park, for example, so that we don't have a harmful algae bloom. So we can mm-hmm. have climate resilience to planting, you know, trees for agroforestry. I mean, the the list is exhaustive here. Yeah, lengthy. <laughs> lengthy, thank you. Yes. I have this question about the underlying geography and terrain of Franklin, if you're doing an inventory, right? We're clearly not beachfront property, right? We're not mountains, right? How, sure. how do we describe ourselves, especially, I, I guess you could almost say, is, is it a forest with people in it? Is it an urban area with a few trees in it? I mean, what's the sort of official, if you can, I mean, is there a description that we should think of? Sure. I think... <laughs> Broad stroke, depends who you ask. From my lens, um, I would describe Franklin as a historic floodplain to the Charles River. Um, so there are United States um, parcels here where the you know Franklin does hold a large portion of um, natural valley flood storage for the Charles. I think predominantly a lot of our developed areas are historic floodplain areas. Um, Franklin is more or less very, very wet, um, despite how developed it is now. Um, interesting. I guess I, I never realized that. That's okay. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, the Charles is this tiny little trickle, I think, through Franklin, but it serves as a uh, as a, a floodplain for that. Yeah, it, it does. And all of the, I mean, Mine Brook, for example, is a major tributary to the Charles. So everything that comes into Mine Brook then goes to the Charles. So Franklin essentially feeds the Charles and the Charles feeds Franklin. Mm-hmm. I think it's very beautiful, but I like water. So <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's one of the things that uh, while walking around, you don't necessarily notice. So King, where it becomes Washington, just before Remington Jefferson, there's a little culvert under the road. And if you stop, you can watch the water trickling down on one side and then going away on the other. But if if you're normally going the 25, 35, go through that spot, you have no idea you just crossed the culvert. Yeah. It's fascinating, Steve, you say that, because in fact, I, I walked across that section of, of King Street today and said, boy, look at this. There's that water running, right? And you mm-hmm. say, where did it come from? Where is it going? It seems all magical. So it pops up and then disappears. You only see it when you're walking. So I probably, I would imagine Franklin is full of that kind of thing that we don't fully, most people don't fully appreciate that there are right. these, these underlying geographic things that no one, you know, you, you know, Franklin through the roads you drive on and not through the, the terrain. Mm-hmm. Right, which is why yeah. someone like you, Brika is is good to have around. Well, thank you. Keep my eyes on the ground. That's that's what I do. Yes, it's, it has a dis- different advantages or additional advantages besides avoiding tripping and falling. That's right. Still do that though. That's well, yeah. Human <laughs> nature is what hazard. It is. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. A question, which is sort of a, a thirty thousand foot question. Mm-hmm. is that what is the value of protecting the wetlands? I mean, why do we do it? I mean, m- many people think, oh, they, they, you're protecting, uh, you know, a little frog that lives in the, that pond over there, and that, that's why I can't build my house here. But they, mm-hmm. I'm sure that, I mean, very briefly, this is, I'm sure, is a whole, you know, a course, right? So you can't, but I mean, in, in, in the, what's the tweet that says wetlands are good because they do? Sure. What? 
Well, since this is a climate change talk or just climate talk, um, I will speak in climate speak. Um, wetlands sequester carbon. 60% of all terrestrial carbon is stored in soils. Of that, it, wetlands or 20 to 30% of those soils are actually wetland soils. And statistically, coastal wetlands, so that's our tidal flats, salt marshes, everything that Massachusetts is known for, well, at least Cape Cod, mm -hmm. um, sequester and hold 10 times more carbon than tropical forests. Wow. So in my brain, the whole reason why I went into wetlands was for climate change resiliency. Um, but to me, wetlands are the endangered ecosystem of our um, temperate regions. They are synonymous to me from the rainforest um, up here. Of that, they they may look dilapidated, they may look spongy and gross, and sure, they don't have birds of pretty colors, but they actually hold a lot of biodiversity, and they are to me, the cornerstone of our landscape, everything needs fresh water, everything comes to fresh water, water is life. So you have all these organisms coming to wetlands to raise their young, to drink out of, to eat, to do everything around it. And they are that cornerstone to life, not to be too fantastical about it, but. Well, I didn't realize it. So it's a it's a critical plays a critical role in basically yes. the functioning of everything, of, so yep. to speak. And and they get as you're quite right. Everyone thinks uh, that that you know junky swamp over there with some brown bushes and mud and you know probably a lot of plastic <laughs> along the edge. That's well, not very yeah. attractive, right? And so it gets doesn't get the respect it deserves. Interesting. Yeah. yeah we I go agree. back into the Franklin's history. You know, it it became a locale because of the farming possibilities because it had lowlands, it had access to water. It then developed some, you know, crossroads. And at one point in time from the train history, <laughs> there was a train that ran through from Boston to New York through Franklin. So it was at kind of a crossroads, but bottom line, you still go back to the water. <laughs> the yeah. water was the source for even, people to come and attract. Even um, off of Spring Street, there's a, well, it's not directly off of Spring Street, um, but there's a pond. If you're past Spring Street and you're walking on the SNET and you look to the right, solar generating facility, is um, you will see a pond in the back. And that pond used to provide ice for the milk um, milk uh, cars that were going into Boston on the, the trail or the rail uh -huh. trail. On Washington Street, just before, as you come down the hill, for those who are Franklinites and recognize when you've crossed 495 on Washington, you come down the hill and you come up on the pond on the right. The building immediately on the right was built as an ice house back in the day because they would take ice off the pond right there. Yeah, I mean, exactly. that's, that's a, not to go too far down the, uh, the historical track, but I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen those things be more frozen than they are now. They don't freeze anymore. Right. And you start thinking that, I mean, there's a pretty clear indicator that something's changing, right? You can believe what you want, but I mean, it's like stuff doesn't freeze the way it used to. I mean, they, they, I grew up in New Bedford and they had a warming house by the little pond that you would, I learned how to skate on 
before I was hired by the Bruins to be their, uh, you know, sidekick to Bobby Orr. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's uh, but I mean that that pond does not freeze anymore. Full stop. Right? It's just too warm. And same thing here. If it, you know, who could imagine shipping ice to Boston? Even if you did it that way, you don't make enough ice around here now. And, wow. Mm. Yeah. No. It's um. Things are changing too fast for other organisms to adapt. So if 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 wetlands are critical, right? They're every they're more places than you think. They need to be protected. What happens to them in a let's say in a warming world? I May mean, I know that at, at the down on Cape Cod, the salt marshes are subject to sea level rise, and there's a problem there. Here in Franklin, as the temperatures go up, what's the shall we say prognosis for the wet, the remaining wetlands? What do you see happening? I'm gonna. I'm from the Midwest, so I like to tell stories, and I tend to ramble. <laughs> so that's, I'm just gonna start. I'm just gonna jump into it. Uh, no pun intended. So one, we have drought. So we have droughts, we either have um, wetlands directly drying up, so to speak, or you have folks utilizing more water. So they are pulling down the aquifer, therefore creating a discharge situation from wetlands because they are connected to groundwater. Mm -hmm. um, so now that groundwater is being pulled down and so then we are taking water from the wetlands. Um, you have lack of snow melt. So now the wetlands are not being as saturated as they historically have been. You have increased heat um, aside from drought. So that would be a big proponent of harmful algae blooms. All of these things would impact the aquatic um, organisms that live in there. So either your native plants or your turtles and your fish. Mm -hmm. um, as such, then it would also impact your terrestrial ecosystems. And then from a point source and non-point source pollution standpoint, since that is, you know, intrinsically tied <laughs> with climate change. Just, what is a point source versus a non-point source for people who may not understand? Thanks, Ted. Um, so point source pollution is pollution that you know is coming from one location. So that is, let's say I have some illicit discharge or um, let's even let's even break it down. Um, you have a car and it's parked in one location 100% of the time and you have antifreeze dripping out uh, mm -hmm. on its underside. That is a point source pollution. You know exactly where it's coming from. As soon as that car becomes mobile and starts driving down the road and it goes from Franklin to Rentham, you don't know where that, you may not know if, it, if the pollution is coming from that car so then that's non-point source pollution so in this and going back to my um, previous scenario with answering your question about impacts to wetlands for climate change with climate change you have more increased storms or at least um, storm events so you may not have rain all the time um, but when you do have rain it comes down quick and it comes down so quick that the soil itself is not allowed to saturate it's not allowed to drink, you know, for lack of mm -hmm. a better um, description, the water. So then you have a bunch of surficial runoff. So all that runoff from that car driving on the road to even the car parked in the yard, get into that water, that water eventually drains to wetlands, everything drains to wetlands. And then the wetlands have to take all that in, all that load in at one point, which then ties back into harmful algae blooms and the list goes on and on. <laughs> 
Right. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it highlights the, the, the virtue, shall we say, of being conscious of this wetland, this sort of, I think yeah. to most people's mind, this ugly duckling kind of a thing that you don't really care much about, but is really critical to everything. And that Franklin would do well to be, to cherish the wetlands it has and make sure that they are well protected. Absolutely. It's, um, it's very hard to mimic or recreate the benefits of wetlands, um, especially existing wetlands, even if they are dilapidated and sad, it is much better from a carbon sequestration, um, climate change lens to restore than it is to replicate. All of that said, I think feeds into one of the things that I know Brutus Cantoregger, our DPW director, has referred to as the triad because uh, we're a groundwater drinking water community where one, uh, we live off our aquifer. So between stormwater and or freshwater, we, we need that cycle to make sure that our aquifer is plentiful so that we as humans can do what we need to do. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I mean, wetlands, I've, I've heard them described as the sinks of the world. So they clean everything. Mm. So they do. I mean, they can take, you know, a certain amount of pollutants, whether that be man-made or otherwise. <laughs> yeah. They can take a certain amount of abuse, but they, they help filter all of our water for us. I mean, they do a lot um, that has tangible value and benefit and they just, they can't say it themselves. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> right. They, which, which is why I mean, in the infrastructure of the town, and I know conservation has been working with DPW about uh, rain gardens and other yeah. tree wells yeah. and other mitigations like that, that kind of, to your point, create or at least help to create some of that replication so that we're creating an opportunity right. for some of that water to better filter into uh, the aquifer of the ground accordingly. Yep, absolutely. I, so this is this is a very naive question on my part. I do not know. So Franklin drinks from an aquifer that is underneath Franklin. I think we have everyone. You know, we have a straw on the ground that we're sucking fresh water out of. Right, that aquifer is replenished. I guess so. My question comes is is that that Franklin water is replenished by probably a larger watershed that does not just include Franklin, right. but the water that is replenished in Franklin must all go through, or how much of it goes through these wetlands? I guess what I'm sort of groping towards is sort of this clear thing that says value the wetlands because you're drinking what comes out of it. Right? If you want water, this is an important thing to to protect. Is that a fair statement? I mean, can you do we know how much these things how much how important a role the Franklin specific wetlands are to the water that we drink? Or is that too I don't attract? No, I don't that's a really good question and a very great statement. Um, <laughs> I don't know what percentage of water comes from the wetlands. To that point, um, a lot of DPW infrastructure, a lot of stormwater infrastructure eventually goes to a wetland ecosystem. All of the basins that DPW creates eventually, 95%, and Derek Adams may correct me, but 95% turn into a wetland ecosystem. You are essentially creating a basin that can hold water and eventually life finds a way 
and you have your wetland plants and you have, you know, your wetland soils. So they are, you know, DPW is creating more wetlands. So I would still say mm, there's probably a fair percentage right. that right. go directly through the wetland ecosystems. I cannot think of one well, um, water or sewer well that pulls from a basin that is not a wetland ecosystem. Right. Fascinating. So, fascinating. I mean, yeah, just, I mean, again, I keep coming back to how fragile everyone thinks they turn on the faucet and the water is going to be there. But it's this incredibly fragile, slow moving process. Mm -hmm. that when you finally when the light, when the penny drops, say, oh, my God, all of a sudden you get much more conscious about you know, yeah. using that water. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think swamps are cool, but <laughs> that's, <laughs> I'm biased. <laughs> well, to, to your question, uh, I think the chart, and I'm trying to call it from memory, but the DPW has effectively 12 straws in the ground with 12 different wells, and they are sensitive because I think well six is offline currently because of uh, PFAS contamination. Now, to the extent that it's in wetlands, it's in the woods, et cetera, how did the PFAS get there? That's a question for another time, but it just points in this, for this conversation, at least, you know, to the fragility of the overall system. The second piece from my attendance at town council meetings and DPW updates, it's been mentioned a couple of times, there had been a hydrologist who provided an update some years ago, apparently before I started doing by reporting, so it predates me. Um, and there's at least been an indication or request, I don't know how official it's been so far, that we're probably due for an update, which would help, I think, answer your question, Ted, in terms of how big is our aquifer, where, what are its sources, and you know how, how fragile is it? Because I don't, there may be some folks that know, and the hydrologist may be one of them, but yeah, we don't have the answers immediately at hand. Right, but right. I mean, it's a, that's a big we know question. at least the symptoms that it, it that there are factors, clearly. I I do have, and this could either, well, you can include this in the podcast or not, Steve, but I do have a, a wetland vulnerability report at my desk that predates me. So, and it may be from what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a it's a book that has a map of all different areas of Franklin, and it rates the wetland resources and how vulnerable they are. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that is not or not again, but um, just a precautionary tale that that is not regulatory. That is qualitative, not necessarily right. quantitative, and that's. That's the, the hiccup. <laughs> yeah. And that reminds me, too, there was one other minor point I wanted to make along the way and going uh, on this great path since then. But <laughs> to come back, the Conservation Commission and your role in particular is relatively unique because you do have a direct line, I believe, from what I heard in some of the prior meetings, where you report directly to the DEP <laughs> as opposed to some other places where councils and commissions report to like town administrator, town council, you, you don't, yeah. you go to the DEP. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, probably could have said that a little bit better, but I like to have fun. Um, yeah, so the Conservation Commission is unique. It is appointed um, by the town administrator and then ratified by town council, each individual commissioner. But the Conservation Commission as a whole um, is unique that it does not report back to town council. Um, where planning board or zoning board of appeals, they have bylaws that town council administers. Sure, they still have state requirements and things of that nature, but no matter what, at the end of the day, push comes to shove, town council still has final decision. You know, town council can still dictate, I know this is a strong word, but dictate what those other boards do. Conservation Commission does not have the same um, setup. So the Conservation Commission is a regulatory authority that answers to DEP under the Wetlands Protection Act. Yes, we have our own local bylaw, which is voted upon by town council, but no matter what, um, town council cannot supersede the Wetlands Protection Act or, or any developer or any resident or, or, or even the town. Nobody mm -hmm. can supersede that. Um, so, I mean, even this morning I was on the phone with DEP talking about a project here in town. Sure. Um, so we keep an open dialogue. We're always in connection. Um, and we, we are an extension essentially of the state and the Wetlands Protection Act. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Chloe's DEP has one organization, but I'm sure there's others. Um, a number of their projects, specifically because it's either water or sewer, are going to potentially encroach upon something in your space. So there has to be that left hand, right hand coordination for sure. Yeah. <laughs> We talk about intersections. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> a hot seat, I think. It's really, yeah. uh... So that's how I can duck, dodge, and dive, Ted. <laughs> that's how I can do that. Although I've been told I don't have a good poker face. So <laughs> I don't lie. I just, you know, politely avoid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, for me, it branches off into valuing. It's too easy to run roughshod literally over the grounds you know to get what people think they want and somehow that always gets put put in a lower priority versus uh when you're talking about a development i'm not i i know, have no knowledge of anything specific right but people who develop things they don't they're trying to knock down obstacles and if you've got a wetland okay we'll move it we'll we'll fly in you know we'll do x y and z and somehow the valuation of that natural capital, I guess is the word, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, that that you have to that has to be folded in. I remember there was some I listened to some podcast where people trying to put numbers on the I think in this case it was talking about cultural capital, right? What's the value mm -hmm. of your culture when it comes to this sort of cost benefit mm -hmm. analysis? And I'm sure there's some sort of valuation of the wetlands, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, it, it's got to be more than dollars and cents. I mean, you know, it's like if, when you get thirsty enough, you'll pay anything for a glass of water, right? So at what point does your valuation that says, oh, this is worth $50,000, uh, okay, fine. But so I guess that's, it's like a, that for me is a bigger question of where do we fit going forward in thinking about our relationship with the world and how do we transform ourselves to be more, you know, in tune with the stuff that's going to happen. I, I, that's not, a, that's more of a pious statement than a question, <laughs> but I mean, it's a, you know, it's like, how do we, and I guess this goes back for me to the idea that 
the wetlands give you drinking water. Right? If you don't want drinking water, forget the wetlands, right? So you keep pounding on that idea that this is this is what you drink, right? Uh, no, you raise um, questions that I ask myself on the weekends. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> that's uh, my whole life, Ted. <laughs> but um, yeah, what's what's trying to navigate through conservation commission department wpa you know there's the the foundation that because we are a regulating authority we still have to fall back to the regulations um that is something that i tend to not remind the commissioners but i often say to the commissioners we are there to optimize projects because most of the commissioners all seven of them i would believe are on the Conservation Commission because they want to protect, mm. they want to preserve. And unfortunately, like with previous projects we've discussed, you know, if if the, inter the regulations are interpreted incorrectly or there's a stretch, still a project can go through um, because they'll just appeal, you know, the developer will appeal, resident will appeal and go to DEP. So instead of being doom and gloom, right, with the conservation commissioners, I just say we optimize projects. So that's where the outreach component comes in, which I think is kind of um, I'm trying to answer your uh, statements slash questions there, Ted. So the conservation commission and myself, we we optimize in the best way that we can to try and educate with every project that's in front of us some sort of regional planning you know massachusetts we have to especially with projects we have to look at things parcel by parcel but that doesn't mean that we couldn't consider the pond that's two parcels up and everything that drains to that pond what can mm -hmm. we what can we plant on the back end of that property to help slow that water to help infiltrate to help you know percolate all sorts of pollution pollutants um you know there's a vernal pool over here typically turtles they can go up to 900 feet from their vernal pool maybe let's do some native plantings right here that gravid turtles will like instead um so we 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 generally genu genuinely and generally um try and and most applicants are receptive really? um and we we really like to facilitate that dialogue and try to be leaders in the community um and, and approachable that's that's a key that's part too we try to be approachable um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to navigate between the regulations and what we all think maybe should be, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. is not, um, legally right. upholdable. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I didn't mean to, uh, suggest that anyone mm -mm. locally is, is anything, but I mean, in, in terms yeah. of, I guess I'm thinking in terms of the culture of our, of humanity mm -hmm. and people. In a hundred mm -hmm. years, you hope that somehow the sensitivity will be there, and how do we, you know, tiptoe? I would, I think, what you're what you're saying is that, like, talking about it in each instance and optimizing the project and saying you could do that builds over time. That has consequence for each succeeding thing, and uh, you have to hope that that is a educational thing for each turn. Yeah. Right? Otherwise, um, my other, my only other thought or not thought, I have plenty of thoughts on that. I'm just wearing my work <laughs> hat right now. <laughs> so just... That's a good idea. What I really like to do, and, and you mentioned this at the end, how do you advise others, um, especially with climate 
grief. Um, I volunteer a lot, actually. So that is something that I have found helps alleviate the burden, <laughs> for lack of a, a, a better phrase, um, a lot of a lot of the grief. So I've been volunteering with a program called Skype a Scientist for the past five years. Um, so I sign up every semester with, um, I typically do grade school children, and I talk about something. Typically, it's climate change. Um, a lot of people want to talk, or a lot of teachers want me to present on climate change, which I personally have always felt was a very difficult topic um, to teach about, especially when it's eighth graders, fifth graders, second graders, and mm. we have wide range of ages. Um, it still is a controversial topic for some. Um, so I difficult to navigate there. I really like talking about like animal adaptations. That's, <laughs> that's what I more prefer, um, but I do that. I think, Steve, you saw the other day um, planting native grasses with Franklin Future Leaders. Yep. Um, I I have a potbelly pig, so I bring him out. He's fully therapy trained, and um, I bring him to memory care units and daycares and things like that. So I try to really focus on the good things, um, and that's, that's how I advise others because, Ted, very recently I, I came to the conclusion um, – well, let me go back. And now we're, we're getting into more of a emotional mm -hmm. standpoint of it. But mm -hmm. when I, when I was a senior in high school in AP environmental science, I had just finished a presentation on eutrophic eutrophication and how it impacted fish. And that is over pollutants in a water body and how that impacts organisms. And my teacher pulled me aside because I'm sure he heard what everybody else apparently hears <laughs> when I speak about these things. And, you know, you're very passionate, Brika, what's going on? Um, and he said, what do you want to do? What, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I laughed and I said, you know, I don't know. I just want to own a wetland and manage it. And here I am in Franklin. <laughs> so <laughs> funny, careful what you wish for, I guess. But um, then I went into it and I, I started researching a little bit more and I thought I really wanted to be a climate scientist. And then I bopped around to environmental science and then I went into forestry and then I went into wildlife biology. And finally, I just settled on natural resources with a focus of riparian areas and a minor in sustainability. So I was reading um, an article the other day that this is the sixth warmest year on record for the Arctic. Mm. And I started following, um, I believe it's called the Book of the Dead. And it is all of the species that have been labeled extinct during our sixth major extinction event. And I just sat at my desk and I typically, every two weeks, I tend to get very, very worked up and emotional. And my, my boyfriend has a really good way of just saying, if an asteroid hits tomorrow, you know, it doesn't matter. So let's just focus on what we have here now and, you know, do what you can. Um, but I realized, Ted, that I just, I got to do it for the kids now. And I think I was being my own worst enemy and wearing a lot of it on my shoulders. And that mm. was making me frustrated. Um, especially, you know, seeing seeing what we see with climate grief and mm -hmm. everything that goes on with human nature and human expansion. Mm -hmm. And so I just really came to that conclusion. 
I, I commend you. I commend you entirely. I, I mean, I think that the, as you probably know, Joan Baez, I think, was the one who said, you know, action is the antidote to despair. Right? And, and mm. actually doing something yeah. makes a world of difference. And it's also, you know, the, what is it, Rebecca Solnit saying that, you know, hope is not a sit on the couch with a lottery ticket. Hope is an axe where you knock down the door. That kind of, I mean, it's like, so, so I love the idea of the Skype a scientist. I mean, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I hope people listening to this podcast take to heart what you're saying is that there you should not carry it around as a weight. But the way to alleviate that is to try and find something that you do. Yeah. And you've been, I think, are in some level of blessed at having recognized and put yourself in a position where most of the time you're doing something that is is meaningful for the people who, I mean, I, you know, I worry about the people who haven't thought about climate stuff, all mm-hmm. of a sudden realize the weight, but don't know what to do about it, right? Mm-hmm. And they and and helping them find the thing that they resonate with, whether it's writing a poem or or you know whatever it is, right? and so. Your example is fantastic, and I really appreciate your being as open to discuss that because uh, I think it really, really means a lot to people to know that that feeling is real. Every time I go out, I, I, every time I go down to the kitchen in the morning, I look out, stick my nose out. It's February, and it's warm. I say, oh, you know, that's a, that's a heavy thing, right? And the guy on TV is saying, oh, beautiful day today, you know, spring-like weather. Yeah, but the earth's dying, right? And, and so, but you do something and you feel better. So there you go. Yeah. I, I, you're, you're doing the right thing. Oh, thanks, Ted. I relate to you on that, about it being a beautiful day. And it's mid-February and you should have snow. <laughs> that's, that's right. Not supposed to be warm. It's supposed that's to be supposed cold. To be. I... I I hear you on that and all those all the snark goes up in my brain too. Yeah. I think maybe that's... what we need to do is find a way to not be the buzzkill. That's exactly says, oh, right. It's a, not it's a beautiful day and how do you say yeah but right how do you find a way to respond and and bring in reality without I don't know that's a but mm. there you go. In our way, what we're doing is having this wonderful conversation so that people will listen to some intelligent voices and say, really? Oh, that's where it goes? And I think to reinforce the point that you made and I did pick up, yeah, by going at, and I don't mean going at physically, but by engaging with the young in planting, like even the the grasses, you're getting them to do something and then some of them will understand, oh, there's some other reason why we do this. <laughs> We're doing it as a stepping stone towards climate because, yeah, climate is still an emotional topic. There are still people who are deniers, despite everything else that's going around and forcing us to make that kind of aha moment you know, that took us, what, till the mid-60s for the the river to burn before DEP, the DPA finally said, uh, EPA finally got created, right? We need something like that. So is it going to be the polar bears or the Arctic ice cap? Some, hopefully not as dramatic. We will be able to have that aha moment before that. So 
this at least, and I appreciate your voice in this message because Ted's been helping me make sense of climate because it it, it is a broad topic and we're, we're bringing it home. I, I, Steve, I, just, I gotta commend and recognize method because I've become convinced that there will be no catastrophe, no climate catastrophe big enough to make the world sit up and take notice, right? Hmm. We had, in 2003, like 4,000 old people died in Paris because of the heat wave, right? Did it change anything? No. I mean, we just roll through this stuff. What, what's going to change is the, 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 the way each individual perceives the universe and their relationship to the universe. Which is what I think you're doing, Brekulai, is, you know, helping people understand where they sit vis-a-vis and that you just can't, right, you can't violate, you can't insult the planet without consequence, right, and that we need to be sympathetic to that. And that it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, just, I don't think anything is ever going to be big enough to sh- shock people awake. I mean, maybe that's just my, my opinion, but uh, it's, it's a different path to get people to that place where we are, you know, sustainable, to, for lack of yeah. a better word. I think creating a sense of place, like going back to Franklin Future Leaders, planting those grasses, um, I want to give them, and it's not, I mean, it's not that it's my torch to hand off or my door to open at all. But, you know, I want to give them a sense of place. And I think it would be so cool for the first graders to plant grasses at our turtle nesting habitat and come back and to see that year after year. And they can start creating their own relationship with a water resource area or an animal. You know, there's something as a scientist within me, you know, I I recently wrote in actually to um, the Wildlife Society. They were looking for voices in conservation. And I, it was more of a Dear Abby post than anything because I followed my heart instead of my mind <laughs> on my entry. But um, I wrote that, you know, I, I, I sympathize with all of the, the, the younger generation, all of the young scientists, because we all go into it because we want to discover something new, because we think it's curious and, and we're passionate about it and we want to, to figure it out. And unfortunately, or fortunately, since it's a challenge, depending how you want to look at it, always focusing on the positives here, there's this looming climate change aspect. There's no, there's no topic now in you know natural resources and science that environmental science anyways that is not touched by climate change and it seems so insurmountable so what i you know reading this article about the arctic and reading book of the dead and all of you know everything about the sixth major extinction event we're going through i want to try and make it so those kids can still have those curiosities and can still be inspired and can still think they can do something that's what I would like to do with my outreach anyways and create future excited little scientists. <laughs> Maybe it's self-serving and it's a bias, but <laughs> that's well, a goal. There's, there's a solution there. And having come through this discussion, I think that's a perfect place to close for now. <laughs> and a little bit of hope for the kids in the future. So yeah. thank you again, Brekalai, for doing this. Yeah. Ted, of course, for being my guide. And to the listeners, I hope you stayed with us for this journey and return. There will be more discussions as we make sense of climate. 
And of course, we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.